You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Hello, everyone, and uh, a very warm welcome to you all this evening. Um, I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the, uh, a professor of public policy at the University of Bath, the director of um, the university's Institute for Policy Research, and I am your chair and your host this evening for uh, this annual lecture from the chief executive of the RSA, somebody you all know very well, Matthew Taylor. The focus of Matthew's lecture this evening, and there'll be opportunity for dis- debate and discussion of what he has to say, is on policymaking. Why policymaking fails and why it succeeds when it does succeed, what are the reasons for the success? And you know, this is a moment in British politics when we have a, a new prime minister. We had an announcement last week about grammar schools. You know, all prime ministers come in and they say, well, I've got a new agenda. I'm going to deliver these things for the country. And they start setting out uh, new policies. And you start again on these sort of policy cycles. And we're at one of those moments now. And it's very important in those moments to think, well, we have some history here. We know a little bit about when prime ministers in the past have succeeded, when prime ministers have come in saying that they're going to change the world, make the country socially mobile, all the rest of it, and we know in the end it doesn't happen. So why doesn't the policy always work? Why does it fail? And what can we understand about policymaking to help us change how we do policy in the future? So that's what Matthew's going to talk about, uh, and then we're going to, after we've listened to what he has to say, uh, open it up for some discussion and debate. But uh, with no further ado, over to you, Matthew Taylor. Matthew. Thanks, Nick, and and thank you all for coming tonight. I seem to know an alarmingly large number of people in the room tonight. Maybe this is just because I've been at the RSA too long, Um, or maybe it's only my friends who come to listen to me now. I I kind of ought to... I feel I ought to apologise seriously for the kind of lack of diversity on the platform. Uh, Nick and I are both white, middle-aged, middle-class, left-leaning policy wonks, so I'm sorry about that. However, we have got different star signs, so um, uh, that's some concession. Um, For uh, most of my working life, I've pursued social progress through designing and advocating public policy. Um, The many failures and occasional successes along the way have led me to a conclusion. In pursuing progress through policy, we should be both more sceptical and also more ambitious. And this evening, I'm going to try to explain this apparent paradox. Also, there's something now that makes this conversation urgent. I believe today's RSA could help bring about a concrete change more significant than any I've pursued before, the introduction of a universal basic income. To fully grasp that opportunity, we must understand the work that policy can do for us, but also acknowledge when policy alone is unlikely to do the job. So a bit of reminiscing. Across my career, I've approached social change from many angles. At the local level, as a county councillor, as the director of a campaign and advocacy organisation. I was, for a brief time, an unsuccessful academic, emphasising conceptual clarity rather than developing solutions. I worked for a political party. There, the assumption was that as long as our people got into power, then everything would be fine, progress would be guaranteed. I ran the think tank, IPPR, an honour I shared with Nick. We thought that rigorous analysis and the pragmatic development of policy options would surely lay the path to progress. I worked as a Downing Street advisor where that faith in robust policy was combined with the imperative of holding on to power and coping with the constantly shifting demands made by events. Then I came here to the RSA. Over the last 10 years, we've gradually reformed the society in the pursuit of greater distinctiveness and greater impact. We've had to be clear about our mission and focus, our ambition, 
um, our reach. Most of all, more, we've been more active in recruiting and supporting fellows as changemakers. And if you're a fellow of the RSA, thank you. Our evolving RSA methodology has reflected and reinforced a growing doubt about what I have called in the past the policy presumption. By this, I mean an assumption amongst ministers, civil servants, policy advisors, but equally all of us, and it really is all of us, who from time to time urge them to act. The assumption that, on the whole, the most effective way to accomplish social change is to pull the big levers of central government policy, legislation, tax and spend, and earmarked funding streams. Now, there's an obvious problem with this view. Big policy is hard to get right, very hard. From any perspective, the recent record of central government policy isn't great. There are the well-known disasters like the poll tax, the child support agency, rail privatization. Universal credit is busily in the process of joining that inglorious list. Then there's the underwhelming impact of 35 years of continuous reform of public services. There have been hundreds of pieces of legislation, thousands of targets. Yet, had we simply devolved control of education, health, policing, and other public services to cities and regions and let them get on with it, with just a limited power of central intervention when things went wrong, would public services really today be in a worse position? And yet, despite all this policy activity, we're living with the failure to tackle major problems, social inequality, lack of mobility, what Theresa May was talking about last week, the economic marginalization of many areas outside the southeast, stagnant living standards, the scale of unmet care needs, low productivity, and economies still deeply dependent on debt. Now, each policy failure has its own causes, but there are underlying factors at work too. The growing complexity and pace of change in the world mean that policy is made against a shifting and unpredictable landscape. Globalization not only generates new tough problems, but it can make it harder for governments to act effectively alone. The public, you, are more diverse, more reactive, less inclined to trust and compliance. Policymakers have to deal with what Helen Margetts and her colleagues recently termed the chaotic pluralism of politics in an age of social media. True. There are some new tools in the policymakers' kit bag, like big data, better research methods, and the use of more sophisticated behavioral techniques. But taken as a whole, the harsh reality is that policy aiming for significant social change faces an ever harder task in the future. Which leads me to my apparent paradox. On the one hand, I believe that we should be more skeptical about attempts to achieve specific social outcomes primarily through policy intervention. There are limits tightening limits to the work that policy alone can do. On the other hand, in the areas that matter most, our ambition should be to create a new social equilibrium, using policy as one weapon in our armory. If our goal is irre an irreversible ordering of the social landscape, our method must be many-sided, subtle, patient, and opportunistic. Earlier, I listed some policies that had failed. Here are three that succeeded. The first is the Scottish Constitutional Convention. Whether or not Scotland eventually votes for independence, devolution has been a success. Few Scots want to dissolve the Scottish Parliament. Yet back in 1979, when the first referendum was held in the dying days of the Labour government, devolution, although scraping a majority, felt well short of the, th of the threshold set by Westminster for turnout. 
Most commentators thought the argument had been lost for generations, yet by 1997, in Scotland, despite the popularity of a newly elected UK government, levels of support for devolution had moved from just over half to just under three quarters. In 1979, turnout was modest because people were unsure. In 1997, it was modest because the outcome was a foregone conclusion. Now, many factors were at work, not least hostility in Scotland to 18 years of Conservative governments, but any history of this shift would have to credit the work of the Scottish Constitutional Convention. It was an association of Scottish political parties, churches, and other civic groups. It not only built a broad consensus for devolution, but also undertook the hard graft of developing a blueprint for the establishment of a Scottish Parliament. So well did the Convention do this tricky, painstaking work that by 1997, it felt that the referendum and legislation was not so much making change as confirming it. Two other examples. The minimum wage is now a national institution. So great is public support, the government uses the tactic of naming and shaming rogue companies as an enforcement device. Yet, in the 70s and 80s, the minimum wage didn't even command the support of most trade unions. Partly because it was a problem suffered disproportionately by women, low pay wasn't seen as a big issue. The minimum wage was the culmination of a long and determined campaign in the unions and more widely across civil society. By people like Chris Pond at the low pay unit, Rodney Bickerstaff, General Secretary of the Trade Union, UPI. And the campaign was also part of a broader process of women getting their voices heard. By the time the wage was introduced in 1998, most employers were expressing support. And today, not only do we have uh, legislation, but evidenced by the profile given to the excellent work of the Resolution Foundation, we have a social and political consensus that low pay is a problem we need to try to solve. A different problem, a different example, is provided by the ban on smoking in public places. In my role in number 10, I was involved in managing a fierce row in the Cabinet about the proposed ban. Trying to negotiate between John Reid and Patricia Hewitt on a mobile phone, in a toilet, on a packed train, is not one of the most positive memories of my life at the top. Mind you, I guess there could be worse stories about a Labour politician and a crowded train. But despite the attempt to block the law, it was the logical and, in hindsight, inevitable conclusion of a process of public education and advocacy that went back decades. In particular, the scientific evidence on passive smoking had fatally undermined the libertarian argument against prohibition. The ban reflected and enacted a shift in public opinion. By the time it was implemented, most venues had already acted voluntarily. Its implementation was uncontroversial and comprehensive. Now, there's something to notice about all these examples. In every case, not only did legislation come after broader civic engagement and action, but rather than generating a backlash, which is what badly prepared policy can often do, they actually increased the demand for more change. So Scotland has now got more devolved powers. The smoking ban has been extended to cars containing children. The minimum wage has become the living wage. To achieve a new social equilibrium, we need to think systemically about the context for change and the factors involved in success. There's a set of minimum success requirements for major social policy. Yes, it must be robust, but it also needs to align sufficiently with existing or emerging social values and offer the prospect of tangible gains that help people achieve their own goals in life. But we also need to be pragmatic, responsive, and creative. We have to build to the social moment when the right policy can expand possibilities, not close them down. 
At the RSA, we call this approach emergent impact. Despite the jargon, there is a danger, I know, that all this sounds a bit glib. Policy that is popular and embedded in civic practices is likely to work. Policy that doesn't is likely to fail. No shit, Sherlock. Yet, with the politicians' need to do something and be seen to do something, and with our natural desire to believe problems have simple solutions, we forget the obvious over and over again. So, what happens when we find a policy idea that we are convinced could make a major positive difference, but which lacks either public support or much civic engagement? I ask this because it's exactly where we are in the UK on the universal basic income. The UBI is, as I'm sure you know, an unconditional living allowance paid to all citizens, or in some versions, all but the well-off. The RSA's version of UBI, and the case for it, has been spelt out in a report and in subsequent articles and speeches by my colleague Anthony Painter, who's here tonight to answer any difficult questions. And a new animated explainer will be on our website in a few days' time. We see UBI's primary virtue as responding to the growing tide of insecurity and anxiety in our labour market. Government is understandably proud of its record of job creation, but less is heard about the fact that over the last decade or so, almost all the growth can be accounted for by what the OECD calls non-standard employment. Casual and temporary employment, part-time work, self-employment, and, of course, the new and fast-growing phenomenon of gig work. The RSA has explored the many benefits of self-employment, but evidence also points to significantly higher levels of job insecurity and anxiety in the lower reaches of the labour market as well as a low and declining sense of agency and control at work amongst those people. By guaranteeing people an unconditional income, albeit a very modest one, we can help people in a number of ways. We can provide a baseline from which people can build flexible employment and self-employment, improving work incentives and strengthening the bargaining position of the low paid. We can shift the state welfare apparatus from monitoring, policing and enforcing to supporting people into work and into progression in work, and we can provide greater support for caring, for volunteering, for adult learning. This is a powerful case. So I have a question. How do you think I should respond if Theresa May were to ring me tomorrow and say she decided to introduce a UBI in the next parliamentary session? Actually, to be honest, I've no idea how I'd respond. Um, but the better part of me hopes that I would say, Prime Minister, that's great, but I advise you not to do it. To understand that response, I want to go back to something for which Nick and I share responsibility, although he deserves more credit than me, and which, had I been standing here seven or eight years ago, I would have said was the proudest achievement of my professional life. Both in IPPR and in government, Nick and I were involved in persuading Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to introduce the Child Trust Fund. The fund was launched in January 2005 and provided every eligible child born after 2002 with a voucher of £250 plus an extra £250 for children from deprived backgrounds and a top-up at the age of seven. The schemes would reach maturity when the child was 18. The policy was a carefully crafted response to the evidence gathered by us and others on the growing role of asset inequality in unequal life chances. Having savings, even quite modest ones, has a disproportionate impact on people's sense of efficacy and opportunity. Furthermore, existing state incentives for saving are regressive in their impact. The policy was broadly supported. When it was announced, it uh, 
gained support from all the major political parties. But in 2010, when the first round of austerity cuts were announced by the coalition government, the Child Trust Fund was at the very top of the list. The government had decided that a policy that wouldn't actually benefit anyone until 2020 was a pretty painless target. And judging by the very muted response, their judgment was spot on. The Trust Fund was not abolished because the policy was failing, nor had the case for it weakened. Uh, the case is, in fact, even stronger, something acknowledged earlier this year by George Osborne in his final budget when he announced a scheme called Help to Save, which bore a striking similarity to the Child Trust Fund's sister policy, the Savings Gateway, which was also abolished in 2010. Notwithstanding the pressure of austerity, the reason the Trust Fund went without a bang or even much of a whimper, I believe, was political. Using our evidence and our networks, we'd won the case amongst Whitehall policymakers without really deeply engaging the public. Some financial institutions developed products to support the fund. A few joined the very limited protest when the cuts were announced. But apart from this, not enough people knew about the policy, understood the rationale underpinning it, or had a sense of how they and their families and their communities might benefit from it. Once the policy had been enacted, most of its architects move on to other issues. In financial terms, the trust fund was a relatively modest step, but we failed to use it to build a social consensus about the need to tackle asset inequality. And that's why I would urge caution if the government offered to implement the RSA's UBI scheme tomorrow. Because although interest is growing in the policy here and abroad, with major pilots happening in places as diverse as Ontario, Finland, Kenya, we still have here a major programme of public persuasion, engagement and invention ahead of us. There are technical challenges for UBI, but I believe they can be overcome. Much more important are objections to the very principle. Among these are that removing conditionality from claimants will further reduce the legitimacy of welfare, something I'm sure Nick will take up with the focus he's put on reciprocity in his past writing. The objection that this will also be bad for the poor by reducing their motivation to do the one thing that would most help them, namely getting a job. That UBI is an abandonment of the progressive idea of the dignity of work. If the case for UBI is to succeed, it's vital that these arguments are properly addressed, as I believe they can be. Well implemented, UBI will actually improve work incentives and the quality of work too. But even if we can't convince people, in that process we need to avoid the temptation of talking to ourselves. We have to engage, for example, with what people actually think about people on benefits, not what we would like them to think. But this isn't just about public opinion. As important is that civil society is prepared to gain the full benefits of UBI and to mitigate its risks. How can employers rise to the opportunity for more flexible forms of working? How can third sector organisations and social entrepreneurs, especially those working in disadvantaged areas, develop opportunities for volunteering that increase people's skills and confidence? How can the Department of Work and Pensions help people get employment with real prospects and help them to progress? How can colleges and other learning providers develop more flexible training opportunities taking advantages of opportunities like digital credits. And for churches, trade unions, community groups, how can we champion a new era of working-class collective action and self-improvement? Ultimately, basic income will need government legislation. It will have to be a well-designed policy. The RSA's model is in many ways very modest, has limited distributional impacts, it creates a UBI below the poverty line, but what excites me is the possibility that it could build a bridge to a better society, that like devolution or tackling low pay or public health, UBI is one step on a longer journey. 
An inclusive UBI movement needs to open up a series of debates about the 21st century, debates we ought to be having more fully already. How can we provide people with more opportunities to work flexibly without adding to our problems of insecurity, low pay and low productivity? How can we take a step change in social ambition so that our goal isn't simply that everyone can have work, nor even that employment offers a living, but also that work provides a scope for meaning and fulfilment? How can we acknowledge and honour the vital importance of care to our economy and society? And more broadly still, how can we have a richer conversation about social progress that links the bewildering pace of technological change and the necessity for sustainable economic growth to ideals of human development? The politics of UBI is not about persuading civil servants or ministers, but about convincing citizens to imagine and shape new possibilities for their society and for themselves. The question is how we take forward these debates and how we go about building a groundswell of support for and engagement with UBI. In my annual lecture last year, which explored the idea of a human welfare economy, I floated the idea of a citizen's economic council, a major deliberative process that would demonstrate the capacity of ordinary thoughtful citizens to engage with their economic ideas. Thanks to the generous support of partners like the Barrow Cadbury Trust and Friends Provident Foundation, we launched that council and its ambitious two-year programme in June. So this evening, I want to float another proposal. I'd like the RSA to host a UK basic income convention. This body, with a high-profile independent chair, would bring together institutions across society, businesses, charities, churches, trade unions, community groups, anyone who is at least open to the idea of UBI. The convention would compile, generate, and disseminate evidence, strengthen national and international networks among basic income supporters, and most importantly, explore and generate the conditions necessary for UBI not just to be a successful policy, but something that genuinely shifts the dial of our society in a progressive and humane direction. So, to the two words in a speech that always inspire an audience. In conclusion... We live in disorienting and challenging times. The world of science and technology brings news almost every day of remarkable inventions and possibilities. Yet these amazing opportunities are not matched by our faith in a better future. Progressives, whether of the left, right or centre, cannot win unless citizens have a tangible and personal sense of what progress might mean for them. Some people say UBI is just too radical a departure from the assumptions and practices of existing policy. For me, it's the radicalism that makes it so appealing. It can become a symbol of a renewed belief in the possibility of major advances in the way we live, the way we treat each other, and what we expect from life. I've come on a journey in my thinking about change. Experience has chastened me. I still think policy can change the world, but only when it is part of a bigger shift and when it is shrewdly designed to channel and accelerate a wider civic momentum. Ultimately, the case for UBI is not just for a new policy created by government, but for a new society created by us all. Thank you. Matthew, uh, thank you very much indeed. And can I first say, as a Gemini, I, I agree with very much, <laughs> much of what you said. Um, we're here in the RSA. It's an organisation created to further um, social progress, as you say, created during the Enlightenment, resting on the ideas, as you reflected in your speech, that reason 
public reason, rational debate, deliberation among citizens can lead to better policies and social progress that follows from them. And yet a lot of people would say we live in a society characterised not by consensus but by polarisation. We live in a society where politicians no longer have to speak the truth, no longer even have to have reference to evidence and, and research. A post-truth politics in which candidates for election can kind of make up policy on Twitter and change their minds the following week. I mean, how, how do you think about generating the kind of public consensus you describe for a policy like the UBI in those sorts of circumstances? Yes, I don't underestimate how difficult this uh, stuff is. And actually, I, I spoke in this room a few weeks ago about how it seems to me we need to join together two debates that are often separate. So one is the debate about different ways of thinking about policy and social change that I've been talking about tonight. And the other is a debate about democratic renewal and political institutions. Because I've come to the conclusion that if you try to have a new approach to policy using failing democratic institutions, you don't get very far. And if you try to renew your democratic institutions, but then carry on trying to achieve change through the same mechanistic means, you don't get very far either. We have to think about these things together. But to take one aspect of this, um, I think, you know, when you and I worked in policy, when we worked in think tanks, we were reasonably frank, I think, about the fact that all policies had upsides and downsides. Um, And you can do that when you work uh, outside the system. But then, of course, once you're in the system, where you've got for example, a hostile press and an opposition party and often internal disagreement as well. It forces you into a position of doing two, saying two things that are mistakes. First of all, we can make change happen ourselves rather than we can only make change happen if we work with people and therefore big stuff requires a kind of relationship and a collaboration with people. I think some politicians are starting to use that language, like Justin Trudeau in Canada. One of the first things he said when he got elected was, I need help to make anything happen. So politicians overstate what they can deliver. And also, and this is so deep-grained, it's almost impossible to imagine it being different. Whenever they announce something, they always say, this is a great policy, it's bound to work, and all other policies are stupid. Now, the difficulty is this. When populists come along and they say you know, by building a wall we can keep the Mexicans out, or by doing this, or by, you know, or by leaving the European Union we have £250 million more to spend on the NHS, or whatever, we say, well, that's terrible. That's so simplistic. You know, you're saying something that isn't thought through. But yet, we have created, I think, an expectation that what you get when politicians speak is an answer they are going to deliver to you and which they are saying is more or less perfect. And so part of, I think, what we have to do, and as I say, I don't underestimate its difficulty, is to start having a conversation which is realistic about how change happens and about the amount of power politicians really have if they haven't got society on their side. What if um, politicians are not as well-intentioned as that? What if they have no intention of appealing to your better nature? What if building a wall across the Mexican border is designed precisely to appeal to your worst instincts about Mexicans. What, you know, what do you do in, a circun- in circumstances where some people think that they only thrive by appealing to the worst sides of human nature, not the best? Well, I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to join in kind of Trump bashing, but I think the... It's quite a crowded field, I think. Uh, the, the, um, I think the point, is, the point I'm trying to make is this, that the way in which uh, progressives broadly defined, that's a bit of a weasel word, I know, but, but, but Democrats, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, people of, of kind of good intent and moderation, the way we need to distinguish ourselves is because we 
we engage people more intelligently in how change actually happens and the role that policy takes. And if we do that, then the populists will sound different because they'll be saying, no, I can do it, I can snap my fingers and change will happen. And over time, hopefully, people will say, well, no, that, that's not how the, wor- how the world really is. You know, I think in our day-to-day lives, you know, if I interview someone for a job and they say, if I come in, I'll be perfect in this job and I'll institute these three things and everything will be fantastic and all the other candidates are completely rubbish, I probably wouldn't appoint them. But, you know, somehow in politics, we expect people to say things to us which are designed in a way not to be credible, and then we punish them when they try and tell us the truth. And we've somehow got to break out of that. And so tonight is part of a thing I've been banging on about for years, as you know, which is trying to get to a more honest discourse between politicians and public, precisely because if we don't, it will be taken advantage of by those who have no intention of being truthful. Okay, let me ask a, a slightly different question, which is, you know, you touched on a number of different policy uh, areas, failures and successes... Um, how do you kind of characterise a policy that has sort of deeper social and economic trends behind it, that has the possibility of public support, from one that is going against the grain of history or is less likely to be... Cons- I mean, how if, you know, if, if Theresa May picked up the phone and you said, well, don't do it now, but, you know, it's worth building support for it, how does she know that the policy you're talking about is in the category of the one that... Uh, will be successful, that history has it on its side. So I'm glad you asked me that question, because it gives me an excuse to talk about my favourite subject, um, which is a kind of theoretical framework that I talked about here a few years ago, and uh, which is based on work of Mary Douglas. And, 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 And very simply, what it argues is that there are really three things that motivate people. There's three ways of thinking about how it is we do stuff together. So, you know, the, the thing that's different about human beings is our social skills, basically, it boils down to it. Um, we had, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Harari was here last week, you know, the guy who wrote Sapiens. And he has this nice line where he says, if you put one gorilla and one human being on a desert island, the gorilla, the gorilla would win. But if you put 50 gorillas and 50 human beings, the human beings win, because they would develop more sophisticated ways of working together. Now, I think there are fundamentally three ways in which we do stuff together, which is the key thing about human beings. Hierarchy, which is we do stuff together because of rules, regulations, authority, expertise, all that kind of stuff. We do things together because of what I call solidarity, which is our sense of belonging, membership, uh, equality, uh, values, culture. And we do things for individualistic reasons. We do things because we think they're going to be good for us. Um, And ultimately, I think policy works when it seems to work on all those three bases. That is to say, it it works hierarchically. That actually will work. I mean, you and I have been involved in policies like, I don't know, neither of us were actually involved, but the NHS IT system. There are policies that are just never going to work. uh, But assuming that the policy works, yeah, so that's the first thing. Hierarchically, it's got to work. The, The facts have got to be right. It's got to be robust. Secondly, it's got to accord with people's sense of what is just and what is right and their values, because that's what the political domain is about. And then thirdly, there's got to be something in it for people. You know, too many policies, no one seems to really thought about how people might actually use this in their lives to make their lives better. There's a kind of assumption about how people will behave, which often doesn't really chime with how they do behave. And I don't want to go on, but I'm going to give you, because that might sound a bit airy-fairy, one example, which is London Challenge. So, you know, London Challenge... One of the most successful policies in recent times, you know, London schools, London local educational authorities went from amongst the worst to amongst the best. And okay, there were other factors at play, but London Challenge was a big part of that. Now, London Challenge had three architects. It had a guy in the Department for Education who was the kind of strategy and data guy, so he's the hierarchical actor. 
It had Tim Brighouse, whose big thing was about reducing the gap between the most advantaged and the least advantaged. He's a solidaristic actor, mobilising people, saying it's about fairness. And it had Andrew Adonis, who was mad for academies and superheads and competition. It had three goals. Reduce the number of failing schools, the hierarchical goal. Reduce the gap, solidaristic goal. Increase the number of outstanding schools, the individualistic goal. So, you know, that sounds... looks. So if Theresa May ran me up, I'd say, well, will it work, number one? Does it chime with people's values, which is why we can't do it now, because most people who don't know much about the policy say, no, actually, it's an unjust policy. And do do people see how they would actually use this in their own lives? I don't just mean in terms of money, but in terms of how it might make their own lives better lives, give them a sense of agency and possibility. So that would be my kind of criteria. so, So thinking about the universal basic income then, you know, you talked about the labour market changing, more widespread insecurity, the gig economy and so on, you know, you're... What do you do when your boss is an algorithm? Um, you know, you're just on a, an iPhone. Well, a lot of people say, well, you know, so here's a big policy for everybody. State has to do it because if you're going to give everybody an allowance, then the central state's got to kind of administer that. You can't do it um, throughout the country in lots of different ways. Um, and we'll all sort of receive it. You know, it'll come to us. And that doesn't feel like a policy that's got much kind of human agency in it. It doesn't feel much like there are sort of as in the 20th century history of the welfare state, people struggling for things that they needed because they couldn't live a decent life without health care and sickness insurance and all those things. And it doesn't also feel like people have much part in kind of running it and living and working in it and living a common life in it, as we might think of the National Health Service. You know, we just sort of get it in our bank account. And that feels quite a long way from your argument for people being in charge and people being committed and people... So, so how, do you, how do you kind of close that gap between this policy you're advocating and the kind of aspirations you have for it? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's a really powerful point, and I think it's one of the weaknesses of the UBI, is that people think it's a kind of, you know, it's just a handout. And that's, I mean, there's a couple of points, uh, just briefly, before I get on to the main point. The first is, I think there is an argument for piloting it, and that's what they're going to do in Finland, and that's what they're doing in Ontario. So I think you could think about piloting it in a single place rather than it being rolled out nationally, and uh, we're exploring that. The other is, when it comes to this question of agency, I just don't think we should underestimate how the state feels to many, many poor people in this country when you look at the, you know, the levels of sanctioning and other things. So, you know, Department of Work and Pensions, it isn't about checking up on you and sanctioning you, uh, but it's actually about saying, how can we help you get a job and progress? Would might really positively change the relationship between the state, state and individuals. But, but to your main point, I completely agree, and this is what I was trying to say. That's why I don't think it's just about public opinion. It's also about civic preparedness, as it were. You know, it's about... I mean, this is a trivial example, but when the smoking ban came in, a lot of, you know pubs and restaurants had, had thought about oh, well, can we create a little space in the garden you know, how, what can we do to enable people to go and have a fag outside if they want to and they kind of adjusted to it so they had, they had repurposed the policy to their, to their end so that they could kind of reconcile people's desire not to be in a smoke free environment with, uh, with, with, with the desire of smokers I think universal basic income similarly we have got to have that conversation about well, what will it make possible you know, if, if people have got some greater control over what jobs they do, if it is more possible for people to mix uh, part-time work and gig work with other developments in their life, with learning, with caring, how can we make that happen? So you're absolutely right. One of the points at which UBI, it seems to me, you've reached that moment, I call that social moment, is when a lot of people say, I can't wait for this to happen because I'll I'll do this with it. It will make this happen. It'll mean this is possible in my life. It'll mean I can offer this to people. Until we get to that moment... 
And I think that's, that was, in a way, part of the problem we had with the trust fund, which was that, you know, there was this money, and we never quite got to the stage when people started to think, oh, imagine what I could do with that. Well, we'll find out in 2020 what people actually do do with the money, I yeah, suppose. Well, one, one final point from me, and then I'll, I'll open it up. Um, I mean, obviously, what, one of the problems in a sort of society like ours where a lot of the power is concentrated in the centre, you know, when, when a Prime Minister has a lot of power, um, is that failure is magnitude, magnified, that, you know, you, you fail big when you fail in, the, in a centralised system. Um, what about the sort of idea that if you did have more decentralisation, if you did experiment, coming back to the points you made at the beginning, if you had more opportunities for experimentalism, you'd have a, more opportunities for failure, but failure that had less consequences, if you like, that it'd be more, we would tolerate policy failure because we were more open to experimentalism, innovation, and so on. And I suppose that's one other... Coming, I mean, you mentioned piloting the UBI. The, the danger, if you say, look, only do really big things with policy, because if you do lots of small things and loads of targets and indicators and all the rest of it, you keep failing all the time. But if you say you can only do really big social challenges and really build up to them, what happens if you build yourself up to monumental failure instead of lots of small experimental failures alongside the successes of the trial and error? So, so let me clarify. I, I'm not saying... Uh, that the only policy you should pursue is really big policy. You know, uh, as you and I will remember, we were in Downing Street at different times, and one of the most onerous jobs when you were in Downing Street was making the Queen's speech interesting, when it was full of incredibly boring tinkering with regulations. And now, of course, we've got to reinvent every regulation because of Brexit. So there's a huge amount of small-scale policy that is just kind of almost a matter of hygiene. It's just tidying things up, modernising. And that, and that has to go on. That's just good government. What I'm saying is that when you try to do something big, when you try, to, to use my phrase, to alter the social equilibrium, to get to a point where people almost find it inconceivable that they might go back. Imagine going back to a time when people smoked in pubs. Imagine going back to a time when there's no Scottish devolution. Imagine going back to a time when there's no minimum wage. To do that kind of stuff, you need to think in this more uh, holistic way that I've described. But I completely agree with you Finding ways to tolerate failure is one of the really big tasks we've got. I also completely agree with you that devolution is part of doing that. It is no accident that around the world, mayors are more popular than presidents and prime ministers. And that's, I think, because the local way of making decisions, which is not really pulling levers, but putting people into a room together, developing strategies, working much more kind of openly about how it is a, a place becomes a better place. So I think the way that decision-making happens at a local level is more effective, more popular, more in tune in the modern world and more possible because of the scale of change and complexity in the world. So I would absolutely... I would, I would, I would, you know, my overall strategy for a politics that works and for policy that works would include both a more frank and open conversation with people about the fact that most big change requires a partnership. And, you know, if you fail in a partnership, there's less... You know, hopefully there'll be less acrimony because we've come tried together and we've failed together. Whereas when I say to you, I'm going to do this to you and it fails, when you're inclined to, to blame me. So a more collaborative, more, more honest conversation about how it is you achieve change, and I agree with you, devolution, there are various other steps I think we need to take as well. Great, thank you, Matt. OK, well, let's open it up to some, some questions and contributions for the last bit of our session today. Uh just picking up on that last point, I, mean, I was listening and you talked about the Scottish Constitutional Convention, which was an incredible success, but you go to Scotland and you can get your arms round it. So it picks up on what you were saying at the end about devolution. It's of a size. I mean, Scotland, what is the average EU member state size? 
but it's a size of place. People have been to the same universities, they belong to the same clubs, they eat in the same places, they bump into one another. And so you can have that kind of conversation. And I love the idea of the convention on the UBI, but I really do say I think you should be looking at doing it pilot in a much smaller geography where you can actually somehow recreate that sense that people are talking about it in the dog and duck, which I think otherwise... England is just too big. It just is very difficult to make stuff work in England. Look, I agree, and, uh, and Nick made the point, and I think we are looking at exploring the possibility of piloting. It is difficult piloting welfare regimes for obvious reasons, but we are looking at it, and it has been piloted in the past in various places, and reasonably successfully. We've, we've got things to learn from. I, I, look, getting into discussion about the, nature, the Scottish psyche is a very dangerous thing to do, uh, but, uh, if you're English. But I, I, I just want to pick up this point. I don't... you know. I did political work in Scotland in the early 90s, and this idea that Scotland is a united country where everyone kind of gets on with each other, is a, it's a very modern idea. You know, you don't, it's not just a Celtic Rangers game when so you would be disabused of such notion, but Glaswegians are not that fond of Edinburghians, and people in the Western Belt aren't that fond of people who live outside. So you know, there are quite a lot of... You know, and, there, and there's class conflict in Scotland as well. So yes, Scotland is a pretty united country now, and I think the Constitutional Convention was part of that creation of a sense of unity. It didn't just come from nowhere. Uh, Switzerland um, had a fairly um, kind of no vote for, um, you know, a citizen's income. And I just wonder if we start talking about these things, as you're suggesting, that will then long-term actually lead to, like, a positive outcome. I, I knew Switzerland would come up at some point. Um, so I'm not an expert on why, we, why it lost in Switzerland, but I have a go, and then, Anthony, if you just nod when I'm saying the right thing and shake, yeah. So I think the proposal in Switzerland wasn't terribly well thought through. I don't think a lot of... I mean, I think basically in Switzerland was a, lot of, was a smaller group of people incredibly enthusiastic about UBI, drove it, and it, what, there wasn't the kind of wider engagement. It wasn't terribly well thought through or planned. So, you know, that's fine. Finland, there's 60% support, and they're going to be piloting it next year. So, you know, I, 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 I'm, by the way, I'm not saying, you know, take on any argument and you'll win it. You know, you, you, you have to... But I suppose what I am saying is that if, you're, if you don't think you can win the argument, you need to have a try, you need to have a go, because the way to deal with the fact you're not winning the argument is not to implement the policy anyway and hope people change their mind, because generally speaking, that doesn't work. Sometimes it does, and that, it, there is an element of political leadership in that, but generally speaking... It's better to put the work in to get people on side and get people knowing what they can do with something rather than just thinking, you know, people don't know what they're talking about, so we'll do it anyway. It's an important point, isn't it? Because the history of social movements does also seem to suggest that when they start, it's really important to have people saying very radical things about what change is needed. When you think about the history of feminism or, or the Green Movement, things which have become over time mainstreamed, although, you know, plenty more still to do, of course. How do you, you know, is there that kind of moment where you you absolutely need to be saying things which meet with public scorn with meet with hostility precisely because that's the only way you start to change public consciousness you open up things which over time then can build support yeah and i think it's about the different the role that different institutions have in society you know and i think that you know those of us in this kind of business of advocacy and social change we all kind of have different roles in that kind of process i like to think that what the rsa is about is you know, because we have um, our kind of events program, is that we are able to have really radical thinkers uh, who who pose challenging uh, questions. And I certainly think at the moment, 
on UBI that when you say to most people, why don't we, instead of you know, uh, punishing people if they don't take work and taking money off them the second they get a job, why don't we instead just give them, everybody, a kind of basic income and let them keep that when they get a low-paid job and, in the end, take the risk that some people might say, that's great, I'm going to watch daytime TV, but actually that's just a hazard you've got to be willing to take in order you get the benefit. So that's most people in the bus stop and they'll think you're mad. You know, so it is a radical idea. You know, that's where it is now and that's why we've got to... That's why we've got to have that engagement. What worries me, you see, the other thing about UBI, and you and I both have experienced this as well, the other thing is the danger is that you do it because you think it's the right thing. The public don't agree with you, so you do it in a kind of half way, in a kind of sanitised way, which basically means it's not terribly well done at all. Yeah. Good. I can see Pat Kane. Pat. Uh, just one, one small question and another small question. One what is... Scotland all right, Pat? Was no, no, no. Okay. You've got it completely wrong, and I'll talk to you afterwards. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, uh, basically, how does universal basic income answer the general desire for taking back control? Just to rehearse that uh, discussion that you might have with someone who made that vote in Brexit. And two, don't you think one of the fair ones for universal basic income uh, is really quite on quite hard on the left because one of the things that you can say uh, about automation uh, under the grip of current capitalist relations is that it's going to destroy a wave of jobs as you know Osborne and Frey have been saying for the last two years so so surely one of the surely Corbyn and Sanders you know are probably the most natural articulators of the use of the universal basic income because as quite a few American moguls are saying it's a good idea because the pitchforks may well be coming so what's, the, so what's the cultural fair wind for it? It might be more on the left than maybe a pair of policy wonks on the stage are so, com- comfortably used to. Uh, I, I, I think, for me, the policy is all about agency. It's all about giving people more control. And um, you know, for me, that, you know, if I had to choose one reason above all others, it would be to give people a sense that they have more choices in their life than they, they do, particularly people who are at the lower end of the labour market or unemployed. So I think agency is what it's all about. It is interesting who supports it. Uh, you know, it's, it's supported by some pretty libertarian people on the right, um, as well as people on the left. And, you know, people have different kind of reasons for supporting it, and I think that's part of the debate I'd like us to have. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to say to people, well, you've got to have this ideological position to support this idea, because I think different people get it from different reasons. And, and that's partly because people think it will lead to different consequences. And the consequences it leads to is, is kind of up for grabs. So I think the politics behind it is interesting. The one thing I would want to say, Pat, is I, I, I think it's really important to avoid the idea this is all about a kind of assumption that the robots are going to take all the jobs, you know, because we've been around that cycle again and again and again. And the robots will take lots of jobs, but lots of other jobs will, will come along. So this is not a policy which is based upon the assumption that we're, never going, that we're not going to work, nor is it a policy based on the idea that work is a bad thing and it wouldn't be great if we were liberated from it. It's a policy based upon making, improving incentives to work, but also potentially improving the quality of work and improving the power that people in low-paid jobs have. Do you envisage a counterpart to UBI? So, you know, with the, with the UBI comes a responsibility on the part of the recipient or a set of responsibilities to society? So we looked at that, and it, I, I think it's one of the ideas... I think it's a really interesting idea to explore. So I think one idea, Anthony, in the paper that... Did it stay in? The paper you wrote was the idea that particularly younger people who get it might be 
asked to kind of make a statement about what it is they want to do with it, how they are going to use it in their lives. So I think there are potential, what Avnerofer calls commitment devices. There are things that we could think about that would encourage people. The only thing is I wouldn't want to replace the existing onerous levels of state surveillance with a new set. But I think your point is is a well-made point, which is that when this comes along, it's an opportunity for people to assert new plans, new ideas for their lives. And if there's a way of making that a public activity, that would be great, I think, yeah. I think one of the challenges with thinking about how policy is implemented is that question, how how will it actually work on the ground? Lots of policies fail because people don't go to the right-hand side of the page and work backwards. I think the challenge with UBI is most people will assume it's going to put taxes up and won't actually understand how it's implemented on the ground. Is, is your thinking that the work you do next would address that? Yeah, so I think, uh, A, that might be an argument for piloting it first because it, it, it might be an argument for saying, let's pilot it and see if it works before we take on the difficult issue of how it is we're going to pay for it. But the other issue it goes into, and, and I'd encourage you to read Anthony's paper, um, our view is that you should start very modest. So our UBI is you know, barely enough to live on, um, it doesn't take you above the poverty line, um, and we would introduce it at the same time as removing a whole lot of other, you know, because you roll up a lot of other benefits in it. Uh, so it has got a cost, but it's a cost that is manageable in view of the kind of scale of the ambition. So we say start at modest, win the principle, and then, and then if, for example, it really does strengthen work incentives and improves work and possibly has an impact on productivity, then you can start to see a process whereby you might raise it over time. But I, my strong view would be start, start modest. Let's try and get three in, yeah. Okay, um, the, uh, one of the better policies of the um, last government was neighbourhood planning, but some recent research has shown that um, if you are wealthy, you are four times more likely to have a neighbourhood plan than if you're not. So the, the question is, how can we resource communities? That's really an issue of resources. How can we resource poorer communities to engage in these kinds of debates successfully? question about skills actually skills in policy makers of the futures whether it's ubi or another um policy area you talk about social agency things like that They're, these are not the skills of policy makers that i know so what kind of skills are you imagining in the future for policy makers richard Olszewski, um isn't the problem with devolution in england the unwillingness of people to let go both policy makers and people at the center but also the people themselves because I've been in numerous discussions, usually with Labour people, about oh, they use devolution within in like a like a mantra: "We'll devolve health, and it'll be a lot better." And then when I say to them, "Fine," but doesn't it come with it that you have to accept things will be done differently in different places? And straight away they come up with, "Oh, but we'll have rules and regulations to stop that happening," which rather then negates the whole point of it. So we kind of. I alluded to this earlier, but if you were going to do a pilot of UBI, um, how how would you think about going about that and kind of measuring the impact of its of it working in a local area? Uh, so I'll do it in reverse order. Um, I, I think it's difficult, uh, but uh, I think it's possible. Other countries are, are exploring it. I think you can... You have to be realistic that a pilot will show you how it works in one place. And that's not quite the same as saying how it would work if it was rolled out across a country. We all know. 
that pilots work better than rollouts work, partly because people are enthusiastic about them and focused on them. But I still think you can learn some interesting things about what it means for the choices that people make in their lives. And there have been, there have been pilots, but none in Britain. So it would be, be interesting to see what would happen in a particular British context. But the design of a pilot is a really important point. And it has to be of a certain size, it seems to me, to be, to be credible. So that's a, a big challenge in terms of paying for it. In relation to the point about, about devolution, which is you know, a slightly different subject, but and when we've talked about it, yeah, absolutely, you're right. I mean, I, I think the problem about... What, one of the reasons that the devolution argument kind of runs into the buffers sometimes, although I think, to be fair to this government, particularly George Osborne, you know, real progress has been made, is we've never told the truth about what actually happens when you do things from the centre. So, you know, I always used to say when, from time to time, people from DCLG, the local government department, come along with a presentation saying we must devolve, and they make the arguments for devolution, I say, don't make the arguments for devolution, make the arguments against the present situation. Because the reality is, our centralised health service, our centralised police, all these, they have unbelievably diverse outcomes. So actually, the question is this, do you have diverse outcomes as a result of local choice, or do you have diverse outcomes as a result of, you know, the failure of officials to, you know, so, so we should have been, if we'd been honest with people about the limitations of central control, they'd have probably been slightly less nervous about the consequences of devolution, but we never really had that debate, because unsurprisingly, politicians didn't want to get up and say, by the way, we're getting massively different outcomes from the things that we're doing. Um, oh, skills. Yes. Uh, basically, I think that we need to be more like designers, to put it in a simple terms. You know, I think that, that you know, the way designers think about change, broadly speaking, um, is they, they think it's experimental, it's very much based on what people actually do, how they actually use things. It, uh, designers are delighted normally when things go wrong, and certainly at the experimental stage, because they can learn more about how to... Whereas policymakers are very brittle about things going wrong. So I think, broadly speaking, and we talk about a lot of this at the RSA a lot, I think we, we need more the way that designers think about change and slightly less the way that policymakers have traditionally thought about, about change. And then this point about neighbourhoods. I mean, I think, look, you know, what, one of the tragedies of Britain is that not only do we have massively unequal outcomes in terms of kind of, uh, you know, econ- economy and life chances and health, but also we have big differences in terms of the level of activity in the third sector. We have kind of deserts, really, of civic action. And I think for UBI to work, one of the things we have to think really hard about is what are the organisations in those communities, from those communities, that will see this as an opportunity to get things happening in those communities, which, and I'm not getting to the whole debate about why people voted for Brexit, but that sense of a lack of agency is palpable. So I think that, that, that... that's precisely one of the ways in which we need to be prepared, which is that when this happens in working-class communities, it isn't just, as Nick said, a handout, or it's a new benefit, will go away, but actually there's a whole variety, there's been a whole conversation, a whole number of new institutions, social entrepreneurs, ready to explore what this will make possible. Great. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, Matthew. It's been a really fascinating debate, and uh, I've certainly learned a lot, and I think it's a very good thing the RSA is provoking this kind of discussion about universal basic income, making things happening the way it is. So, Matthew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your lecture and thank you for your discussion. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.